What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans, and we have a lot to get to this hour. Stocks like Skinny, the markets are rallying as the president proposes smaller targeted stimulus bills. Do investors believe this is real progress? Plus, Eli Lilly jumping as it files for emergency use authorization for its COVID-19 treatment. We're going to speak with the CEO about progress in making COVID less deadly and that implications for the economy. And now that the big antitrust report from Congress is out, it's time to start writing the laws. What that means for big tech is ahead. But let's start with the markets with a doubt more than 400 points. Dom Chu has more for us. Dom? All right. So, Kelly, that more than 400 point gain for the Dow also means that we have erased every single bit of loss that we had in yesterday's big sell-off due to the non-negotiation of a stimulus package. But that skinny bundle, like you said, of possible COVID relief has led to a 433-point gain in the Dow. That's up 1.5%. Similar percentage gain for the S&P 500, holding right above that 3,400 mark. And the Nasdaq Composite leading the way higher, up over 1.5% right now. Many of those technology and communication services names remain in focus for that technology trade in the Nasdaq. Now, if you take a look at some of the themes developing right now, One of them that has been getting a little bit more attention among traders as of late is the transportation-related stocks. They are continuing to move higher, trying to get to that semblance of a new 52-week high and record high. Watch United Parcel Service. I'm going to put a star right there because that stock made a new record high in trading today, up 48% year-to-date. Union Pacific, the second biggest stock market cap-wise in the overall Dow Jones Transportation Index, up 13%, and that transport trade up 5% year-to-date. And you heard it over the last hour. Disney, down component, also moving to the highs of the session, up 1.7%, $123 per share. That move higher coincides with activist investor and hedge fund titan Dan Loeb and his third point management pushing Disney, suggesting that they suspend their dividend payments and save that cash to invest in streaming properties and content for Disney+. Plus. That move is helping to push those shares higher. But Kelly, remember, Disney shares were about $153 at their record highs. We're 123 right now, so a 20% drop from those records. We'll see if we can get back to that level over the course of the next year. Back over to you. Yeah, it's not often you see a big investor pushing for a dividend halt. Uh, we'll, we'll definitely follow that one, Dom. Thank you very much. Let's get to the latest on COVID relief now. The president shutting down talks for a comprehensive relief package yesterday, now calling on Congress to pass targeted aid specifically on three big issues. Elon Moy has the very latest for us. Elon? Kelly, the president tweeted last night that he still wants to give $25 billion in aid to the airline industry, tap $135 billion for small businesses through the PPP, and send another round of $1,200 stimulus checks to all Americans. Now, these were all elements of the deal that the White House and Democrats have been negotiating right up until yesterday. And this morning, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi called the president's behavior erratic. She said that it's hard to see any clear, sane path in anything that he's doing, and that perhaps he saw the political downsides of walking away from these negotiations. Now, Pelosi and the Treasury Secretary did speak over the phone this morning 
about aid to the airlines. But a standalone bill on airline industry aid has already lived and died on the floor of the House last week. As for direct checks, Pelosi told reporters that all the president wants is a check with his name on it. He doesn't want to crush the virus. So, Kelly, Pelosi has resisted calls from Republicans and from within her own caucus for piecemeal legislation. And it doesn't look like he's changing her mind now. Back over to you. Elon, I have a question on this. You know, when Pelosi made that concession last week and said she would consider uh, airline relief by itself, that seemed like a huge breakthrough. I, I didn't even understand in terms of the politics of it why she would offer that up. Why didn't that bill go anywhere? I mean, wouldn't that be the very measure that should kind of break? Isn't that exactly what the president is calling for now? Yeah, that was a huge surprise, Kelly, and it certainly moved the airline stocks. What ended up happening is that uh, that bill was brought up at the last minute at the end of a House session with very little notice after lawmakers had sort of already done their business for the day. It was brought up under a special order called unanimous consent, and it was quickly blocked by Republicans. Republicans say that if this bill had been brought up under a regular order and gotten a full vote on the House floor, there would be a chance for it to succeed. But at the end of the day, Republicans are calling that out as just political maneuvering. All right. So we'll see maybe this time around if it's regular order, if it does move forward or if there's a whole lot more to this, as there usually proves to be. Elon, thank you. Elon Moy with the latest TikTok out of Washington. And stocks are soaring on hopes of a stimulus deal, even if they are much smaller ones. The Dow, the Nasdaq, the S&P turning positive for the week and for the month now, although we're early in. Is this rally all about COVID relief? Joining me now, Jamie Cox is managing partner at Harris Financial Group. And Brian Weinstein is head of global fixed income at Morgan Stanley Investment Management. Management. Guys, it's good to have you here. Jamie, I'll start with you. Uh, listen, Art Cashin has been pointing out that it's not just COVID relief. The market seems encouraged by the president's treatments and their availability to the rest of the population. And we're going to speak with Eli Lilly about that a little bit later on, you know, their own treatment moving forward today. So, uh, you know, how much of this depends on these relief packages moving forward at this point? Yeah, I think we've been missing the forest for the disease the entire time, talking about stimulus and all that kind of stuff that's probably not a not going to come to fruition. What matters most is how we're able to get beyond COVID. And when you see monoclonal antibody treatments work for the president, and then Eli Lilly come out with a therapy that was literally three months in the making. I mean, it's incredible what we've been able to do over the past couple of months just to get these therapies as a bridge to a vaccine. And that is really the most important part. I think markets are focusing on that. I don't know a lot about all the dynamics of this type of thing, but I do know when there's a panic in the market, investors should be really wary about, you know, selling down, but use it as an opportunity to buy. And yesterday is a, is a perfect example that investors should be buying these panics as opposed to selling them. And as long as we continue to see so, the rates of infection not turn into higher mortality rates, I think you're going to see that continue. Jamie, let me ask you then how you should invest, because there are people who have this kind of binary trade where they say, OK, if relief moves forward, I start putting on the infrastructure trades and, you know, the macro rebound trades and so much more. And if not, you know, I stick with big tech. Um, the scenario that we're talking about is one of a less lethal coronavirus and one that perhaps doesn't require uh, or have the economic harm that it did the previous go round. So how does that leave you investing? Well, I think a lot of people, there's a lot of different things you can do. I mean, utilities have been completely disregarded over the past couple of months, and they're doing great now. So people that want to be a little bit more conservative can use those. But people need to recognize what's actually happening during this pandemic. 
we're actually setting up for one of the most important innovation waves in, in healthcare history. You know, the amount of R&D spending that's happening in healthcare is going to translate into enormous things in the future, whether it be cures for cancer, whether, you know, devices that will be in, introduced to help people, you know, take charge of their own health and, and safety. We are, we are seeing some, some of the things now that people can invest in, like Dexcom and, you know, Thermo Fisher, and you've seen all these developments in, in gene and cell therapies that people need to be paying attention to and forget about all the noise of elections and all this kind of yeah. stuff, because that's where money is going to be made in the future. This is fascinating. All right, let me just pause for a second. And Michael, before I turn to you, let's get a news alert out of the bond market right now. We just had the 10-year notes going up for auction. We know yields have been creeping higher. Rick Santelli, how'd it go? You know what? I, on a grade for demand straight up 1 o'clock Eastern by investors, I gave this auction a B minus, boy minus. It was definitely above average. The yield at the auction point seven six five, And yields have climbed a bit after the results are out. Uh, which may be a bit counterintuitive since the reception was good, but it does make sense that the selling is coordinated with, of course, some of the headlines regarding stimulus or a skinny package. Uh, everything was above average. Uh, bid to cover indirects, directs. Uh, dealers taking only 22.9%, but only slightly above average. It priced exactly where it was trading in the when-issued market. And tomorrow, in the form of 30-year, $23 billion will be the last of $110 billion in supply. And I guess the best comment to make here is, is that it is a bit surprising to see such demand, but I think really it comes on a day where we're going to get the minutes for the last Fed meeting, and I think that is applicable here. Uh, many investors think that this is the top of a range and that the Fed isn't going to let interest rates get too out of hand, meaning go too much higher. It'll be fascinating to see if the minutes uh, talk about any of these issues regarding how much more nudging that they would do. Kelly, back to you. That's a great point as we start to think about that one-year target again. Rick, thank you very much. And Brian Weinstein, let me turn back to you and ask where you think these yields are headed. Um, you know, especially given Jamie and I were just discussing, you know, if the coronavirus is more manageable this time around, you know, if we get kind of stimulus uh, breakthroughs or not, uh, where do you kind of see us headed from here? Yeah, it's funny. We agree with a lot of that. You're going to get more stimulus. And I guess the word in fixed income is supply, right? We're getting treasury supply. A, a ton of it, as Rick just went through, we're getting $10 billion a day in corporate supply, which is an unbelievable rate. And the Fed's taking a lot of it in on the balance sheet. So we haven't seen the volatility. We could see tenure notes go higher. Um, but the truth is, we think it's a buying opportunity. The Fed's taking out supply. Um, there's a huge demand for yield. Uh, and there's lots of ways you can get yield in fixed income still. You don't have to buy treasuries. So rates yeah. will move up a bit. They have um, but they've been in a 20 basis point range since April. Um, so, you know, they, they, can, they can move up a bit, but we, we wouldn't be scared of that. Quick final question, Brian, because we hear a lot of different commentators saying that they're making investments predicated on rates moving higher from here. You're, you're saying this is a buying opportunity. You see rates moving lower, basically. Is that right? Well, I think there's a chance in the short term they do move higher, but I, the question is how much higher, right? So if they're 76 basis points today, if they go to you know 1%, 25 basis points higher, or, you know we've seen estimates as high as 125. I just think about all the different places that's going to cause uh, buying opportunities, right, away from duration. And if you're afraid of it, you can buy high yields, right? You can buy things that have much higher yields than treasuries. So I'm not saying rates have to go screaming lower, but if they do stay in this range or move a little bit higher, we continue to see inflows in fixed income people buying things with more yield than treasuries. And it's just so hard with rates at zero. We expect that to continue. Yeah. 
All right. Thank you guys both. Brian Weinstein, Jamie Cox on the bond markets, the stock markets, COVID, and a whole lot more. There may be a lot of market optimism about stimulus right now, but economists in the Fed are warning there could still be long-term damage to the economy if these bills don't go through. Fed Chair Powell, uh, Jerome Powell warning this week that with little or no more stimulus, he says, quote, over time, household insolvencies and business bankruptcies would rise. Meanwhile, Minneapolis Fed President Neil Kashkari going further on Squawk Box this morning, saying the failure to inject more aid is, quote, letting the forest fire rage. Let it burn. It'll burn itself out. And meanwhile, all the animals are dead. He says there are enormous consequences if we just let things go. Let's dig a little bit more into the potential economic fallout here with PIMCO former chief economist Paul McCulley and our own CNBC senior economics reporter Steve Leisman. It's great to see you both. And, and Paul, wanted to get your get you to weigh in on all the major developments this week, um, especially the president now proposing these tactical stimulus bills, which would seem to make a lot of sense. But it's unclear to me whether they're they're going to move forward. So where does that leave us, do you think? I think the big event of this week was actually Chair Powell. He was most forceful as he's ever been that the response to the COVID crisis and the nurturing of the expansion has to be a all-of-government approach. Uh, so he literally was pounding the table uh, that we need to have fiscal expansion uh, and was begging in some respects uh, for, uh, for Congress to do it. So I think he was really laying out the foundation of what needs to happen. And what the president's doing is a great deal of noise. And I have to admit, uh, that I can't reverse engineer his tactics right now. Steve, you know, it was interesting to hear what Jamie Cox just said about the treatments for COVID, the prospects that, you know, the disease is becoming more manageable, maybe, and how he says he doesn't think this market rally is so much about uh, stimulus and that investors need to worry about the election, but that the science is going to help us uh, with the pandemic here. And if so, is that partly why Congress is thrashing around here trying to figure out, you know, where to send relief? I'm going to first join Paul in not trying to reverse engineer the politicians, because I think uh, it's way above my pay grade, Kelly, as you might imagine. I, I just I just can't do that. Um, there is no economist, no forecaster, no uh, investor who I've talked to who wouldn't say that um, the the. the Public health response, the vaccine, the uh, uh, the, the different uh, uh, biotics or, or, or medicines that they have ahead of time. I couldn't think of the word of uh, the Regeneron uh, uh, product uh, that that would trump any aid that's out there. The trouble is, Kelly, an issue of timing uh, right now. If they passed a bill now, it would probably not get into the economy for several weeks. Um, I happen to think the market has looked through the latest political gaming and said, you know what, either way, after the election, there's going to be a stimulus. Uh, and, and if it's the Democrats, it could be closer to the bill that Pelosi wanted. If President Trump wins, it could be uh, one or two trillion. Either way, a stimulus is coming. I think the market in the background of the trade, yes, vaccines and other palliatives and uh, medicines that are out there in the foreground of the trade, I'd suggest, Kelly, is the idea that stimulus is coming either way. I, I would agree with that. And, and as you just said, it kind of just could depend on the election outcome, what form exactly it takes. Paul, is there a dollar figure that's important to you as it regards the economy? You know, if we're less than a trillion versus over two trillion, does that make a huge difference to the long term outcome? 
I don't think a dollar figure really is the right, right way to look at it. I mean, there will be a dollar figure, but I think uh, echoing what Steve was saying is that we're going to see a very large package that is suited to the needs. And I think that will be particularly the case uh, when Mr. Biden's in the Oval Office is that it will not be driven by a number but driven by the needs. And I think that Chair Powell articulated the needs, uh, which will be long lasting for many Paul. segments of our population. Uh, so I think big is the right answer and uh, that that's going to happen. And I think that's what the market is anticipating now. And we have a great deal of political noise, uh, but we're going to go big, really big. <laughs> Paul, I, I was I was just going to say just, that. Just that, from, go ahead, Steve. The, yeah. Just very quickly, the problem with addressing the needs is you 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 stumble into that blue state red state problem. When you look at uh, where the money is needed most, it happens to be right now in the blue states that have had uh, two things that are important. The first one is that they have experienced the most uh, COVID uh, in, in their states. The second one is they happen to be the largest states and taken the most actions to shut things down. All of that suggests there should be more aid going to those states. And that's the thing we're hung up in. As long as we're starting to uh, figure out which states, blue states or red states, get the COVID relief money, compared to, for example, we don't stop and figure out which states get the hurricane relief money, but all of a sudden we're into this red state, blue state thing, you're going to keep stumbling over that political divide. And Steve, finally, where do you think you know, this leaves the economy 12 months out? Real quickly, Steve, and then Paul, real, real quickly, Steve. It depends on the timing very quickly, uh, Kelly, if we can get this stimulus done. Uh, Americans do have savings to get through this period. The problems is the savings okay. are in the wrong hands, if you will, that wealthy households have more of it than the low income households. And Paul, a final word. I'm actually quite optimistic looking out a year on the economy. I think we're going to be a lot better. I think the big issue is that we need to make sure we don't leave a lot of people behind because we have a lot of structural change yeah. that has been accelerated uh, and we really need to take care of uh, the people who have been hurt the most. But overall, I'm reasonably optimistic that we will have an enduring expansion uh, a year out. You're so right, though, about the divide, the digital economy, you know, the professional class versus everybody else. Paul McCulley, Steve Leisman, thank you both, guys. Really great stuff. Thanks for your time Thanks, today. Kelly. And still coming up here on The Exchange, Eli Lilly is moving higher as it applies for emergency use authorization for its COVID-19 treatment. We're going to speak with the CEO about whether treatments like theirs can help make the pandemic less deadly. And in its lengthy report, Congress concludes four big tech giants have monopoly power and it's time for changes. But now the real work begins, writing the bills. We're going to look at what's likely to actually make it in. The exchange is back in a couple. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor.
Democrats on the House Antitrust Subcommittee have released their findings after a 16-month investigation of competition in digital markets. It's a nearly 450-page report, and it says that Google overwhelmingly dominates the search market, that Apple has monopoly power over iPhone app distribution, that Facebook's monopoly power is firmly entrenched, and that Amazon has monopoly power over third-party sellers. Here to break down these findings and some of the report's recommendations, Alex Kantrowitz. He's founder of Big Technology and a CNBC contributor. He's also the author of Always Day One, How the Tech Titans Plan to Stay on Top Forever. Alex, so given your book, uh, you basically think this will be manageable for them. Uh, is that right? Oh, yes, more than manageable. I mean, if you look at the findings coming out of Congress, not a single Republican signed on to the Democrats' report. So what you're basically looking at is if you're going to have any real change happen, you need the Democrats to sweep not only the White House, but the Senate and the House in November. And only then can we actually think about some real change coming out of this report. I don't think the Republicans are going to follow this recommendations if it goes, these recommendations if it goes the other way. So you need basically an electoral tidal wave in order for us to see real change coming from these recommendations. All right. So just as a thought experiment, let's say it is a blue wave. Democrats have the White House. They have Senate. They have Congress. What do they do? I mean, the first thing they need to do is think about fixing the country. We have so many other priorities that are going to come before big tech regulation. And in fact, I would say if Joe Biden becomes the president and comes in and starts picking apart the tech giants versus putting the economy together or bringing people back together and getting our healthcare system back together. Uh, he's going to be looked at by a lot of people who are going to be like, what are you doing, Joe? Uh, but, you know, should they down the line end up writing the bills? I think that you might actually see uh, them start pushing the tech giants to uh, have to go to the courts versus arbitration with some of the suppliers, people like publishers and uh, vendors on Amazon, as opposed to deal with them in arbitration, which is a sticking point with the Republicans. And I think the major right. thing that needs to happen one way or the other is that the regulators get more funding so they're actually able to do their jobs. Yeah, that's something Ken Buck, uh, the congressman, Republican congressman, is calling for yesterday, more funding for the regulators. But also uh, he'd be on the other side about kind of forcing that through the courts, um, things that could open them up to class action and so forth. So it illustrates this divide that you were talking about. So let's look at it the other way. Let's say that uh, the president is reelected. What happens then to big tech, do you think? I mean, I think it's more of the same, not too much regulation. Um, but the cool thing about this report is you see both uh, Democrats and Republicans like Congressman Buck saying there's a need to fund these regulators. Now, if you think about it in the big picture, the FTC and the DOJ antitrust division get about $500 million a year in total. All right, Facebook alone makes that in three days of operating. You know, Facebook made like something like $17 billion in revenue last quarter. So how could you possibly have a fair fight with regulators Going after big tech with that sort of money, uh, it's just not going to happen. And I think, you know, I spent a good chunk of September speaking to people working inside these agencies, and it's not anywhere close to being fair. They're good-hearted, they care about what they're doing, but they're just, they got two hands right behind their back trying to come against the tech giants. So if any good comes from this report, well, I think it's going to be a lot more funding to the FTC and DOJ. Give those divisions a billion dollars a year, and we'll see what happens. Interesting. And, and maybe they will, you know, and in that case, maybe investors will start to price it in. But as you rightly pointed out, for now, it doesn't seem like they're so, uh, so concerned about this. Alex, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks for joining me.
Alex Kantrowitz. Thanks for having me. Stick around for Power Lunch. Congressman David Cicilline, who is chair of the House Antitrust Subcommittee, will join us to discuss the findings of this report and their potential plans and recommendations coming out of it. Look forward to speaking with him. Don't miss it. Coming up, the president pushing for smaller stimulus bills, adding more uncertainty to what's been a roller coaster ride for investors lately. Do any of these proposals stand a chance with the Democrats? And speaking of stimulus, the airlines get all the attention. But what about the rest of the travel industry? Without a bill, they're also facing massive layoffs. We've got the numbers and the stocks to watch. Stay with us. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. Their 2028 upstream methane intensity target is set to be 53% below the 2016 baseline. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices. And they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash methane. Welcome back to The Exchange. Stocks are rallying on the hope of targeted relief from Washington today. The Dow's up 421 points, just about 50 points shy of the session high. 1.5% gain, but pretty consistent across the board. S&P's up 1.4%. NASDAQ up 1.7%. In the Dow, it's Intel, Boeing, and United Health, your leaders. Remember, though, Boeing coming off a 7% decline yesterday after a couple of setbacks, adding back about 2.5% today. In terms of the sectors, all 11 of them are in the green today. And you've got consumer discretionary material materials and technology leading the way. So a mixed bag there. We should also note industrials up about 1.6%. So you can see there's kind of a cyclical bent to this, even with tech doing uh, well today. Now, all of these moves are coming after the president showed support for several smaller and more targeted stimulus measures, including aid for airlines and those direct payments to Americans. House Speaker Pelosi saying today that the president made a terrible mistake in ending COVID-19 aid talks. So what happens now? Joining me are Stephanie Miller, Managing Director at Fiscal Note Markets, and Tony Fratto, the founding partner of Hamilton Place Strategies and a CNBC contributor. It's great to have you guys back. Stephanie, I thought this was going to be a victory lap for you. Uh, yeah, you know, yesterday it looked like like the, the, the prospect of any bill this year was totally off the table. What do you think now? Yeah, I mean, he's clearly doing some walking back of the hard no, um, and that's not surprising because in the minutes and hours after his 2.48 p.m. tweet yesterday saying the deal was dead, you started to see some at-risk Republicans and other Republicans either explicitly coming forward and saying, you know, that they really don't think this is a good idea, or you had this morning Cook political report, um, which does all the, the some of the best, you know, ratings. They moved the South Carolina Lindsey Graham seat to a pure toss-up, and that was a pretty safe Republican seat not mm-hmm. long ago. And so I just think that congressional Republicans are probably pushing for something. But as you set it up, you know, I'm still skeptical that Democrats are going to be willing to play ball. I think they have a lot to win by not. Interesting. So, Tony, the way Stephanie's describing it, there's a lot riding on Republicans' election efforts to get a bill passed. And 
And so tell me what you think that kind of the Democrats are up to here. Is it basically, you know, hey, it's our way or the highway? Well, look, I th- look, I, I was one of the, uh, as I said last time, I was one of the holdouts saying, uh, you know, I think they can get a, uh, you know, get something done that was uh, that was larger. And, uh, you know, I guess you should, I should never uh, overestimate Congress's uh, occasional incapacity to do the right thing. They really do need to do this for the economy. They need they probably need to do it politically also. Uh, but the timing is really is really tough here. And, you know, the things that we've learned since last week. Uh, are you know the the debacle of the of the uh, the presidential debate and the president getting COVID um, has really put Republicans in a tough place. If you're looking at uh, you know looking forward right now, you know do you think uh, that this president is going to be able to pull off a victory four weeks from now? That's looking less likely. And so you know if you're Republicans, you want to give this you know gift of economic stimulus at this point uh, to what is you know, very possibly a Biden administration. And I think they can, you know, there is still a need. We know airlines are a need. Um, you know, could they do piecemeal? Possibly. But I really agree with Stephanie here. I just don't see uh, the political will in this moment for these two sides to get together. So, Stephanie, you think this is off the table before the election? Yeah, I mean, and we've been talking about before and after the election for months now. Now, before the election, is just a few more weeks away. Senate's not even in session until October 19th. Um, that was a change since we were all last on the program due to three senators announcing they had coronavirus. So, you know, there's only about a week or two that both chambers are actually here to do something. It could be quickly after the election, but that we could be in the throes of a contested election at that point. And the idea that both sides would easily come together, then I remain skeptical. I think that the bet that this happens in the first quarter of next year is probably the safest one. Tony, if that's I can imagine, case, actually, I mean, Kelly, if I can imagine markets- something getting done shortly after the election, but not the big deal. Uh, because I do think Republicans at that point might be in a position to do something. They just will not want to, uh, you know, do it before the election right now. I just wonder how much, uh, you know, we've been bit up on this idea that this is coming. I mean, so, yeah, I, I don't know. Tony, it's, it's, a, it's a head scratcher. Look, it's one day it looks like this is going to happen somehow, some way. The next day, you think maybe not. In the meantime, like we've talked about earlier, you hope that the, the treatments on COVID can at least progress. And that's affecting the politics of all this, right? As vulnerable as people feel is how much they're pushing for more support. But even on the second round of stimulus checks, I mean, that's a huge issue. A lot of people are really, really, really keen on that. I, I mean, do you think we're likely, the president makes it sound like they could be going out imminently, but you, you Tony, are making no, it sound can't. like I, I think not, that's, no I think chance. that timing, yeah, no, I think you're right, Kelly. I think that timing is part of the problem. If this was, you know, look, six weeks ago, they could have gotten to a deal and those checks absolutely would have gotten into households um, in time. UI, uh, unemployment insurance, could have been handled in time. You would have been able to see the early stages of a handoff from the economic boost from CARES 1 to the economic boost of a CARES 2. Even if they passed something miraculously, you know, this week or even next week, it's it's not going to get into the economy. Now, you may still have good feelings about it and goodwill that some kind of deal, uh, you know, got done. Uh, but the question comes down to politically, remember, these are political actors, is to whose benefit is that that it happens now? And uh, I think Republicans have made a determination. It is not in their political 
interest in this moment to do that. The economic cost of this, by the way, is significant. I think there's no question about uh, about that. Delaying yeah. this right now is going to have damage in the, in the rest of the fall and into the winter. And it goes back to what Stephanie said about, you know, the tight races, Lindsey Graham, Seton, so much more. Have to leave it there, guys. But as always, thank you very much. Stephanie Miller, Tony Fratto on the prospects for more COVID relief. Let's get to Sue Herrera now for our news update. Hi, Sue. Hello, Kelly. Hello, everybody. Here's what's happening at this hour. Just moments ago, Derek Chauvin, the former Minneapolis police officer facing charges in the death of George Floyd, was released from custody after posting a $1 million bond. Two British men are due to appear in a Virginia federal court later today, accused of helping the Islamic State torture and murder captives in Syria, including four Americans. The men, known as the Beatles due to their British accents, were extradited from the UK after the Justice Department agreed not to seek the death penalty for them. Forecasters expect Hurricane Delta to arrive somewhere along the Louisiana coast Friday after crossing Mexico's Yucatan Peninsula today with winds estimated at 110 miles per hour. And at least 300 COVID-19 cases are being reported at a prison in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. Another prison in that state recently reported 437 cases. You are up to date, Kelly. I'll send it back to you. All right, Sue, thank you very much. Sue Herrera. Coming up, Eli Lilly moving higher after seeking its emergency uh, authorization for its COVID-19 antibody treatment. The shares are up 2.5% today, and we are going to speak with the CEO about this treatment, the potential timeline, and what production could look like. David Ricks will join us after this break. Welcome back. Eli Lilly today filing for FDA emergency use authorization of its COVID-19 antibody drug. Shares are almost 3% higher on that news. Meg Terrell is here with the details. Meg. Hey, Kelly. Well, this is the first in a class of antibody drugs designed specifically to treat COVID-19 to be filed for FDA clearance. Now, we just saw the first data on this single antibody a few weeks ago. Uh, and now Eli Lilly says it's filed for this emergency use authorization in high-risk patients recently diagnosed with COVID-19. Company also reporting data today on a combination of two antibodies. Now, that's a similar approach to what we've seen from Regeneron and what we know was used for President Trump. Uh, people saying those data looking very promising. Uh, joining us now to discuss this more is Eli Lilly CEO, David Ricks. Uh, Dave, thanks for being with us. You know, tell us about your decision to file for emergency use authorization here on data in this single antibody that you, know, you called proof of concept. This is very early, but we're in a pandemic. Help us um, think about how you weighed that decision. Well, thanks for having me on today. It's a big day for all the scientists and our collaborators have been working on this program really just now for seven months. And here we are filing with a regulatory authority. I think your question is, well, why now? Um, the first reason is, of course, the background of the, the crisis we're in and um, the data we've generated, which is first and importantly, that all doses of the monotherapy appear very safe. Uh, we're confident in the safety of this approach and that um, across all doses we studied, we saw a significant reduction in viral load early in the disease. The primary input we had specified in that first study you spoke about, uh, we didn't hit only for, only for the middle dose, but the reason was I think it was the wrong choice. When we look at other parameters that are more important, like symptom reduction, hospitalization, ER visits, all doses perform well. So we're submitting with the lowest dose, and one of the key pieces of news today is we started making this medicine uh, really back in the summertime at risk, 
and we could supply up to a million doses at that 700 milligram level by the end of the year uh, and do a lot of good. So that's why we're submitting today. We're also studying the combination, as you mentioned, and that, that has uh, strong promise as well for the future. Well, I know that you don't usually discuss price before something is actually on the market, but can you give us any sense of what the price tag for this will look like, both to patients out of pocket, but also the actual you know, wholesale price tag you'll put on the drug? Right. It's an important question and one we're thinking a lot about still, so I don't have a definitive answer uh, today. Uh, but I can share a few of the principles we've thought about. The first and most important is in the, in, and it relates to why we submitted for the emergency use authorization, is it's important in this moment to make access available uh, to everyone equally, uh, regardless of which hospital you go to. Um, and uh, the best way to do that is with an emergency use authorization from the government right now. Um, the second thing we need to do is make sure it's, it's very low cost or no cost to everybody that needs it when their doctor believes that. So that's a key principle is we want to make sure this is available at low or zero cost really around the world. Now, uh, we've put a lot of our time and energy into this. We've, we're incurring costs by manufacturing it. We certainly want to recoup those. But the second principle we've arrived on is really to make sure that at whatever price we, we put it out there, it creates value in the health care system in terms of reduction in other costs and does so rather quickly. Uh, the idea of shared value is a principle we're embracing here. And then finally, Meg, we see this, we're an international company. We see this as a product for a global pandemic. Uh, we need a global uh, strategy. And we have decided to go with a tiered pricing approach so that developed countries will all pay the same exact amount and lower developed countries will pay less. And the least developed countries uh, we'll try to make this available really on a philanthropic basis or at least at marginal cost. Um, and we want to work with some partners to do that. So uh, those principles we're laying out there and then working on the exact details as we speak with this news today. David, it's Kelly here. If I may, can, we, can you kind of explain for everybody, especially after we've seen the president's treatment with, uh, from Regeneron, now we have your treatment uh, moving through the pipeline as well. Where do we stand in terms of these treatments reducing the lethality and the severity of COVID? Where, where is the science? How comfortable do you feel that these treatments can be used? Are, are we talking about treatments for people who are really sick to prevent them from getting sicker? Are we talking about for somebody who might be younger and have just a mild case, but this can you know, take the edge off the severity? Where are we? It's a very important question. Thanks for asking. I think the data we're announcing today uh, clearly demonstrate that there's a difference in risk between people. This study uh, used these antibodies in early um, in disease, so mild or moderate, uh, very simple, similar to how the, um, the president was treated, uh, to knock down that viral load and really give people a, a, a chance to overcome the virus with their own re, uh, uh, immune response. Um, and our, our drug, both mono and combination therapy, does that successfully. And we know that because it not only reduces the viral load early in the disease, reduces symptoms that patients experience, but to your point, most importantly, keeps people out of the hospital. And I think our studies are the first ones to demonstrate that reduction in uh, ER visit and hospitalization. We didn't have any deaths on uh, placebo or active. That was also an outcome we were looking at. Uh, presumably, if we study this over more people, unfortunately, we might see those, and we would hope the drug reduced deaths because it dramatically reduces hospitalization uh, by 70 to 80 percent, depending on which of the regimens you're on. So that's the hard data we have to go on. And it's important to note, we saw that in high-risk patients, we defined as over 65 
and with what's called a body mass index over 35. That's a definition of obesity uh, in the U.S. Um, if you had one or both of those, of those conditions, you were deemed at high risk, and your rate of hospitalization jumped dramatically on the placebo arm, but was similarly reduced using the medication. So we're suggesting to the FDA, we think that's the appropriate setting for these uh, monoclonal antibodies while we have limited supply. High risk, meaning the, the elderly and the obese. All right, Dave Ricks, we appreciate you being with us here today, and we'll look forward to hearing about the news, what the FDA says, and how quickly it acts. Thanks again for being here. Thanks a lot. Yeah. All right, thanks to David. And Megar, thanks to you as well. I know there's so much more to ask, uh, but it was such a big day for them. And again, at a time when we're getting more hopeful about treatments for COVID. I'm going to take a quick break. Up next, uh, we have, let's see, the airlines climbing on the possibility of a standalone stimulus bill for their industry. But what about the other travel-based companies that are on the brink? We're going to take a look at their prospects for relief when the exchange continues after this. American up 4%. Welcome back. Let's take a check on some of the hotel stocks down 17% or more so far this year. Without stimulus, there's more pain to come in the form of massive job losses. Seema Modi spoke with Booking Holdings CEO Glenn Fogel a short while ago. She joins me now with the highlights of that. Seema? Kelly, nearly half of the 17 million jobs in the hospitality industry were lost in March and April. Since then, about 4.5 million have been restored. However, however, if the stimulus bill is not passed, Oxford Economics anticipates over 1 million travel jobs will be lost by December. It's why travel executives, including Booking Holdings CEO Glenn Fogel, are urging lawmakers to get a bill passed. This is a horrible thing if we don't get a stimulus package across. It is so important for the industry. I say to please, uh, the President, Secretary Mnuchin, uh, Madam Speaker Pelosi and, and Minority Leader Schumer, please, please get together and come up with a package that will help bring back this great industry. Fogel says the other issue is access to a vaccine. But Kelly, with a growing number of Americans saying they won't take it, that certainly raises questions as to whether travel, the industry, will see a strong rebound once a vaccine is in fact made widely available to Americans. Yep, and the shares are up a little bit today, but again, it's a long way to climb. Right. A passionate appeal from Glenn Fogel as well. Seema, thank you very much. Seema Modi. Still ahead, take a look at this mystery chart of nearly 58% from the March lows. According to one analyst, there could be major risks ahead for the stock. We will reveal it next here on The Exchange. Welcome back. We're at the basically session highs for the market right now. The Dow at more than 500 points. So the previous session high had been around 470. So as we enter the afternoon session, we continue to climb here up 510 with all the major averages rallying pretty much in lockstep. That's a 1.8% gain for the Dow. We're seeing the S&P up 1.7%. The Nasdaq up just about that much as well. Some of the bright spots for this market have been housing autos and manufacturing. In fact, take a look at some of the auto stocks in particular here. We have names like AutoZone, the largest retailer, losing some steam last month, but still up 68% from its lows. Or O'Reilly Auto Parts, the second largest auto parts retailer, up 78%. And Advance Auto Parts is the standout, soaring 120% from its lows earlier this year. But my next guest is warning there are some headwinds looming. Joining me is Liz Suzuki, research analyst at Bank of America Securities. Liz, it's great to have you because this was a surprise to me. We've all been talking about this huge demand for auto parts and uh, why do you think that it may start to slow a little? 
Yeah, so I think, you know, the auto parts retail industry is actually really interesting because it gets overlooked relative to the rest of the retail industry. It's not as trend driven, and it's also overlooked relative to the rest of autos. You know, it's not as high profile as the manufacturers like GM and Ford, but it does have attractive long-term fundamentals that we think still hold up over the long term. So thinking about the profitability, which is higher than that of the average retailer in terms of operating margins the and relative to the rest of autos as well and the consistent long-term growth in the industry. Now that consistency has kind of been rocked by COVID-19. So, you know, when we look at what has happened so far this year, uh, you know, as soon as the virus hit, uh, lockdown came, you know, became the, the big trend. And then that was a big issue for driving activity. You know, no one was on the road, no one was going to their, uh, to their workplaces. And so miles driven uh, came down significantly. And then, and, and so did auto parts sales. And then we got into mid-April when stimulus hit, and all of a sudden we had this massive inflection point higher from uh, sales being down uh, double digits to being up double digits. And that strength has actually persisted throughout the spring and summer. But we think that you know, as, as right. stimulus fades and as we get past that strength and the pent-up demand in auto parts starts to uh, taper out a bit, we think that that DIY auto uh, industry in particular is likely to see a correction more towards the normal growth rate of that sector, which is more low to, you know, low double digits or low single digits rather. Yeah. Liz, I only have time for one more because we got the Fed minutes looming here. So tell me about the stocks. Um, are, the, are we going to see them consolidate? You know, I know Amazon's a big uh, threat here potentially in the long run. Who, who would you bet on? Yeah, so we think that the uh, you know the the relative beneficiaries in this market are the large, well capitalized retailers, and particularly those that are more exposed to the pro side of the market, which has been underperforming relative to DIY. So while AutoZone is really the you know the powerhouse in DIY, Advance is is the strongest in pro. It has sixty percent of its sales that go to professional repair shops. O'Reilly is about forty five percent, and for AutoZone that's only. 20%. So we see recovery happening in the pro side of the market while DIY is fading. And then, um, you know, also all of the large auto parts retailers are very well positioned to take market share in this environment. They all have stronger omni-channel offerings okay. than any of the mom and pops, which are still about half of the auto parts uh, retail uh, locations in the U.S. Yeah. And so they can offer that online service, which the others can't. Fascinating. DIY gives way to DIFM. <laughs> Do it for me. Liz Suzuki, thank you very much. We appreciate it today. Uh, talking through some of the risks to the auto stocks. That does it for the exchange. As I mentioned, we're just moments away from the Fed minutes. I'll join Tyler Matheson on Power Lunch after this quick break. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.